0: Good morning. Here we are back in Matthew's Gospel right at the end of chapter 27. We're going to be moving into chapter 28. On April 5th, A.D. 33, a group of women who witnessed Jesus die on the cross gathered together early in the morning to properly prepare Jesus' body for his final resting place. The tomb had been provided, as we saw last time. A a quick but incomplete job had been done to wash and wrap his body as he was laid in that tomb. And these women who had watched that process from outside the tomb knew where the location was. That was the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Everybody agreed that it should be done, that he should be properly cared for, and they were committed to coming back and doing it right. The complete thing, they didn't have time to do it all right. Jesus was their Lord, their friend, the one they knew to be the Messiah. So these women had um, one expectation really that day. And that was just to honor him. When they got up Sunday morning and Sabbath was finally over and it was daylight and they could go do this job, their only expectation was to go and take care of their friend according to the proper burial customs of Israel. That's what was on their hearts. It was still a sad time. Their their master was dead. So they'd kept the Sabbath and it must have been a a tear-filled Passover Can you imagine celebrating passover that night when all day long you were at the side of the cross watching jesus die and give up his life and the spear be thrust into his side and um and then him taken down and taken to that tomb and then they had to go celebrate the passover and then they had to wait until sunday morning but they do and out of love for their master they they quietly make their way that morning back to the tomb where they saw him laid. And on Saturday, the day before, everything was quiet in Israel. That's the Sabbath. They didn't labor. They were not allowed to travel very far at all or do many other things forbidden by the law of Moses, piled on by the traditions of the rabbis. So there were all kinds of restrictions on what you could do during the Sabbath. And so they laid low, kept quiet. All of Israel did. In fact, the only busy people on the Sabbath Strangely enough, were the chief priests and the rabbis. They, they had gone to Governor Pilate. And if you turn to Matthew 27, 62, you can see that the Pharisees uh, had a problem. Jesus had suggested to them in terms they, they really did understand that he would rise from the dead three days after he was killed. They did not believe that to happen, but they did believe that a missing body could revive the whole Jesus movement and somebody could claim that he rose from the dead. So the text says, in verse 62, Now on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I am to rise again. Therefore... Give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day, otherwise his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead. And the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go, make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure, and along with the guard they set a seal on the stone. So one question when we read this is, when did Jesus say this to the, um, in the hearing of his enemies, uh, that he would rise after three days? Well, he plainly said it to the disciples privately. He was very clear about that several times, including Judas, who may have told the Pharisees and the rulers when he betrayed Jesus that that was the prediction. But to the Pharisees also, he publicly said in John chapter 2, um, in a figurative way, he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. But they, even then, they seem to think he was talking about Herod's temple. That's how they brought it up at Jesus' trial. But there is another place, another text, Matthew chapter 12, verse 39, where Jesus said, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth." That was said not privately. That was said publicly. Um, and it's not hard to understand. That's a very clear teaching. In fact, Jesus said that in direct response to the scribes and Pharisees when they said they wanted to see a sign from Jesus so that he could authenticate himself in their eyes. So it was actually a response directly to them when he said that. So they could definitely get the idea that he's saying he's going to rise from the dead after three days just from that. So any one of those um, options is there, and maybe all of them together led them to believe that that would happen, that he would claim that, and that they needed to do something about that to prevent the word going out that he had risen from the dead. So these indications are um, clear enough for his enemies to request a guard to prevent the body from being removed from the tomb. And they wanted that guard to last for three days through Sunday night. So Pilate consents. I don't know what he was thinking when they came to him, probably when will all of this end with regard to this Jesus person. But uh, the guard does go to the tomb and they seal it. And they would basically stretch a, a cord across the stone and use clay or some kind of stuff like that to patch it in there and then put a stamp on that clay. And they might have rolled, rolled a smaller stone and on it too to kind of help secure that seal. So if anybody moved the stone, those clay seals would break and it would be really clear. So that was a way to absolutely make sure that nobody interfered with the tomb. So the Pharisees leave. The guards assume their station and watch. They were there to watch the tomb, like I said, through Sunday night. And the whole purpose was to prevent the claim of a resurrection. At this point, Matthew shifts the story, and we're moving into chapter 28 now, the last chapter of the gospel. The story shifts to the women. Up before the sun, they, they gathered the prepared spices and perfumes, the elements that the, uh, Joseph and Nicodemus did not have with them when they first put Jesus' body to rest, and they start heading for the tomb. Now, here we have to talk about differing accounts in the four gospels. Each of the Gospel writers share details that the others do not, as is often the case, but in this particular matter, gets a little bit trickier. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are pretty similar, but give various details, and uh, Matthew particularly is sort of clipped. It's um, more of a summary than than given a lot of specifics. Um, Also, each of them includes different names of the women in part because they probably heard the story from different individual women. They don't contradict each other that way because Luke says there were a a group of women, but each one only mentions one or two of the women, so it's just kind of interesting how that plays out. All the Gospels mention Mary Magdalene. That's the common name in all of them that's actually mentioned by name. Matthew mentions the other Mary, which is the mother of James, the apostle. Mark mentions the two Marys, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome as well. Luke mentions by name the two Marys and Joanna. And he also says the other women with them. So that could be a group of eight, ten or more women, but the, the more known of them are named, but each Gospel writer names different ones, except they all mention Mary Magdalene. So this is basically a group of women from Galilee that had stood with Jesus' mother at the cross. She is not part of this group. Now, John only tells the whole event in a very personal way, entirely from Mary Magdalene's perspective. So how her story fits in with the group versus her personal experience is kind of hard to maneuver. It's just hard to figure out exactly how they tie together. So in some aspects of her personal story, there may have been other women with her. But when you read John, it really sounds like it's pretty much her. So she was probably detached from the group for a while um, while other things were going on. I'll try to explain how that could have laid out. Um, So, he only tells what happened to her, so it's a little little bit tricky there. So, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are telling the story of the women, but John is telling Mary's story only. That's quite typical of John, by the way, and his style. Uh, His whole gospel is structured around individual stories. We have a lot more about John the Baptist in John's gospel than we do in the other gospels, a lot more about Jesus' mother Mary... From John, we have more about the individual disciples from John, like Thomas or Philip or things like that, guys that are hardly named at all except in lists in the other gospels have individual stories and incidents regarding them in John's gospel. Instead of healing crowds in John's gospel, like the other gospels say, we have these wonderful individual stories of healing. So he's always focusing on individuals. Now, John wrote quite a bit later than the other gospel writers. Uh, maybe as much as 20 or more years after the other Gospels were written and widely circulated already. So while his Gospel is amazingly structured, it's really brilliantly laid out, it's very different from the others. Anybody that's read the four Gospels know the first three kind of look similar. That's why they're called synoptic Gospels, actually. Synoptic means they look the same. They do. They flow the same. They have a very similar structure. But John's is completely different. The way it's ordered, the way it's written very different so um he is basically filling in things that were he's not retelling stories that were well known he's filling in details about parts that were not well known and he's adding them in and those are the personal experiences of different people so matthew mark and luke are telling this group experience and mary magdalene is part of that one of the ladies they're talking about and John is telling her unique personal experience um, with her. So I'm not going to focus as much on John as the others because I want to try to capture everything today. And You could do a whole sermon on Mary Magdalene and John's Gospel and I'm not going to do that today. But as I said, she alone is mentioned by name in all four Gospels. So it's interesting that Mary Magdalene is mentioned by name in Matthew because she is not mentioned him by him at all until the cross of Jesus. It, he just mentions that Mary Magdalene was there. We've never been introduced to her in his gospel. So she had to have been a very well-known member of the early Christian community in Jerusalem because he doesn't even bring her up. Everybody would have, but when he says her name, he, he bothers to mention her name at the cross, people would have recognized it at the time of his writing. So she is one of those women. Mark does the same thing. And she's mentioned only one time in the Gospels before the cross at all, and that is in Luke chapter 8, where Luke mentions several ladies who financially supported Jesus' ministry and sometimes traveled with the disciples. He also mentions Joanna and Susanna as part of those ladies. And he only identifies Mary as, quote, Mary who was called Magdalene from whom seven demons had gone out. That's all we know about her before the resurrection, the cross and the resurrection stories. That's all we know about her. So she was a supporter of the ministry. Jesus had cast seven demons out of her. She was a demoniac and he delivered her and she followed and helped and financially supported the ministry of the 12. So her prominence at the end must mean that she was well known in the Christian community outside the actual testimony of the written Gospels, because she's mentioned so little there, really. So now let's look at what was happening that morning. Things start off with an earth-shaking event, literally. Matthew 28, 1. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it and his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. Now that happens before they arrive. So they're getting together their stuff, they're starting out, then there's an earthquake. They might have thought it was an aftershock while they were walking through the streets on the way to the tomb, not knowing that an angel had just arrived in a big way. So the ladies would not have known that, yet the soldiers collapse either unconscious or just frozen in fear. They're not dead because in verse 11, they're running around in town. So uh, they took off as soon as they were able to do so before the women get there. That big stone uh, was moved. It would have taken several very strong men. You know, people that figured this kind of stuff out say it would have taken 20 men to move that stone. But Several strong men with leverage, some kind of uh, levers or something, could probably have moved it, but uh, rolled it out of its place. But the stone is moved by that angel. He just picks it up and moves it aside. And he sits on it. It's a chair for him. Mark tells us the ladies talked about that stone while they were heading towards the the tomb. In Mark 16.3 he says they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Turns out that wasn't a problem at all because an angel took care of that. So now if we weave the different gospel accounts together, it would seem that Mary arrived first and John is pretty clear about that. He also says it was still dark whereas the other gospels say the light was just beginning to dawn. So either John could have been using the word dark for when the light is just beginning or it could have been still black when Mary got there and then when the other ladies arrived, dawn had started. There was some level of light coming out. So... Um, if john meant there was still no light dawning when mary got there then then um she had to have been alone so she shouldn't be kind of grouped so matthew is kind of like putting them all together in this story to make it very abbreviated but um john tells us she john implies strongly that she was there alone and it's not hard to imagine that mary started out uh with a group of ladies uh, walking there, and then maybe they were waiting for some other ladies to join them before they proceeded on, and Mary said, hey, I'm going to go on ahead or uh, see if I can find some people to help move the stone. That's all possible. We don't know that, but that's reasonable to think that could have happened. So, But John says she arrived and found the stone already displaced, and she was alarmed by that. So there's no soldiers around, there's no angel that she sees. And I have to mention here that there's absolutely no suggestion that the stone was moved to let Jesus out. He's already risen. The only reason the stone was moved so people could go in and see that he wasn't actually there. That's why that's going on. So one amazing thing about the telling of this world-changing event is that the resurrection itself was not witnessed. When we talk about witnesses of his resurrection, we're not saying any human being saw him get up and come out of that tomb. Nobody did that we know of. We are saying that many witnesses testified that Christ was risen because of their interactions with him, their personal interactions with him. They not only saw him, they touched him, they ate with him, they um, interacted with him over a period of many days. So it appears that in this Point So far, Mary doesn't see angels or a guard or anything. The guards are gone already. And the angel isn't seen when she approaches, so she just sees that the stone has been moved. Okay, this is John chapter 20, verse 1. I'm going to read this part of John for you. Now, in the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that would be John, and she said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So she runs. Jesus' body is gone. Somebody's taken him. She runs to tell Peter and John. Then the other ladies arrive, and they find the same scene. There's no, there's no soldiers. There's no, um, no one outside at all. It's just an empty place, but the stone has been moved. It's been rolled up and put off onto the side. So Mark says, looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. So Matthew's account, like I said, is really abbreviated. He doesn't say anything more about what the women did. He just goes straight to the angel just talking to them. And that's what I mean about his um, account being very much a summary rather than giving the little what happened next kind of a story. So the angel just speaks, and he says in Matthew 28.5, The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. Just as he said, come see the place where he was lying. So Mark says the women entered the tomb, and Luke says that too. So, So they're just giving more detail and more context for the angel's words. So the women, they enter, and they're surprised. They're mystified. He's gone. They don't see anything else happening. So here's Luke 24. Verse 3, when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing, and as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, so they know these aren't just two guys, these are um, angelic beings, supernatural beings, the men said to them, why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Now, while each gospel gives different details, Matthew and Mark and Luke all record that the angel said this, he is not here for he is risen. They all say that. They all give other things the angel said, but that's the one thing that's common to all of them. He is not here for he is risen. So that's the heart of everything that's going on here. That's the great proclamation of the angel. He is not here. He is risen. That great truth is what has powered the Christian faith since that day. He is risen as nothing less than the fact that Jesus conquered death by defeating the power of sin. Sin condemns us. He paid the full pri- price of our sins himself. And when that was done... He rose victorious. So last week we talked about uh, Thomas Jefferson a little bit and his edited account of the life of Jesus from the Gospels. Remember he cut and pasted the Gospels together and he created his own life and morals of Jesus without any miracles and without any resurrection because he recognized that Jesus was the highest moral teacher in history. The greatest moral standard was given by him, the greatest moral teacher of all time. So he wanted to study Jesus' moral teachings. But it is an absolute certainty that President Jefferson would not have had the moral teaching of Jesus in his hands to cut and paste with or to follow at all. He would not have had the Gospels to cut and paste with had Jesus not been raised from the dead. His words would have died with him. So there's a huge historical question that has to be answered here in every knowledgeable thinking person should weigh these questions. And when you read secular accounts of how Christianity began, they always sort of skirt around these major questions. And these are the two big questions. What made this tiny band of followers turn into world changing bold men? What, what changed them? What happened there? The other question would be, how did they go from men whose leader died an ignominious death on a cross to men who gave their lives and dedicated the rest of their existence to proclaiming that he rose from the dead. Why, what happened that made that happen? That they became world changers by dedicating their lives and giving up their lives to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus. That is what they proclaimed. They did not go out teaching moral philosophy. That is not what the apostles did. Christianity did not expand and endure much persecution for centuries because Jesus was a great moral teacher. He was that, and he remains the most compelling human being to have ever lived. His moral teaching and his example is the highest moral life ever known and the highest moral teaching ever known. But all you have to do is look around us. All you have to do is look at the world we live in 2,000 years later. Has humanity learned to live the moral teaching of Jesus? Is that what you see? Is that what is going on in our culture? Is that the norm? If it's not, why not? Why not? Why aren't people just living this way? Well, the reason is because human beings are deeply flawed creatures. They are, human beings are moral failures, And if God is moral, and if it's a moral universe, then we are in trouble because we fall way, way short. We actually don't need more moral instruction. We can't live up to our own moral feelings and beliefs. But this higher moral teaching of Jesus does one great thing for us. It exposes how far short we are Of true goodness I measure myself by the teachings of Jesus and I'm realized that you know uh, the amazing grace song he saved a wretch like me I I see my wretchedness in that that's all I see I see something beautiful and wonderful that I don't live very well so Jesus reveals true goodness it exposes us to the standard that God has for humanity And when he reveals true goodness and we look at that, we say, that's not me. That's not me. And he reveals it by his words and he reveals it by the life that he lived. If you don't love your enemies and love your neighbor as yourself, you don't deserve heaven. And you really shouldn't be allowed near the place, should you? Because what are you going to do? You're going to spoil it. If you've stolen or lied or coveted or hated you would spoil heaven. If I went there as I am, heaven would not be heaven anymore because of Wayne. Amazingly, that's good news. That's good news if Jesus is risen. He, if he is risen, then what he said becomes really important. He said, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many." That means we can be saved by His bearing the burden of our sin Himself. A risen Jesus means that He conquered death for us. So what made the news of Jesus go out into the world against fierce opposition was not a moral path. What made that happen was not a moral path, but a risen Savior that people had personally experienced. That is the witness of those who were there. He is risen. So let's go back to the women now at the tomb for a moment. They find the stone on the ground off to the side. They enter the tomb. It's empty. And then again, Luke uh, 24, 4. While they were perplexed, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And while the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said, Why do you seek the living one? among the dead. That is still an important question. Why indeed? In the 21st century, we could ask ourselves the very same question. Because you are missing the greatest news in the world if you see him as just a historical figure who taught these things and everybody was amazed by him and then he died. Remember how Jefferson's life of Jesus ends. They they rolled the stone over the tomb and they went home. That's how it ended. Just a good man, slain by the system. Folks, that's not it. He is not here, for he is risen. That's it. That's what it's all about. That means death has been undone, he has conquered it. Jesus, the great moral teacher, also said this I am the resurrection and the life he who believes in me will live even if he dies and he who lives and believes in me will never die that's what the apostles went out and proclaimed that's the power behind Christianity that is the great claim the resurrection of Jesus makes that claim a certainty a historical certainty Well, let's keep following the narrative here. Let's pick it up at uh, verse 5 of Matthew chapter 28. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, just as he said. Come see the place where he is lying. He was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. Tell his disciples, they quickly departed. How did they leave? With fear, because this is incredible, and great joy, and they're running. I mean, they're so happy, these ladies. Wow. So from tears to great joy in a moment's time by this experience, and they run. They don't get very far, because what happens? They see Jesus himself. Verse 8. I'm sorry, verse 9. It says, Behold, Jesus met them and greeted them, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Don't be afraid. Go and take my word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. So they see Jesus, they touch him, They worship Him. What an experience that was. I mean, completely unforgettable. So Joanna, Susanna, the other Mary, and the other unnamed women, they they all see Him. They all hear Him. They all touch Him. And Jesus reinforces the angel's message. Tell the disciples to meet me in Galilee, He says. There's going to be a big event there. A resurrection rally has already been planned. It was planned before He went to the cross. And they, they need to be there. So they hurry off to the disciples who are in hiding still. Now, Mary is told, went, we told, saw from John's gospel, she went to get Peter and John. So she might still be there uh, when they arrive. We don't know how all those details, again, connect up. But Luke puts it this way, Luke 24.10. Now, they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James. Also, the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. So it seems like Mary went there, got there first. The other ladies came in a bit after her. But these words appeared to them as nonsense and they would not believe them. So there isn't going to be a resurrection rally in Galilee if the disciples don't show up. And so far, they're just incredulous, right? So the women tell what happened, but their words appeared as nonsense. Now, look, I get it. The the apostles were dejected. They were sad. Their life was over as far as they knew I mean, I get it. They lost all their hopes in this world at the crucifixion of Jesus uh, just a day and a half before this. They should have believed the women. Uh, Jesus told them he would rise again. Uh, They'd lived with him for three years. They'd seen a lot of amazing miracles. Uh, John had seen firsthand all of the Lord's agony on the cross, however. He heard him give up his life he saw the spear thrust into Jesus side and a death like that must have seemed absolutely final to him so he just couldn't believe it at first and he would have told the other disciples everything he saw and they all would have felt that same dejection and the testimony of the women hey they were women right so They didn't carry much weight with the apostles. You say, well, that's terrible. Hey, that is first century Jewish culture. Women were not given the same level of respect as men. You would not have had a woman of brilliance vying for the Supreme Court, the the Sanhedrin, uh, like we've seen recently in our, our own culture, because they would not have been permitted to have achieved things like that in those days. In fact, a woman could not give testimony in court in the Jewish culture. That in itself is pretty amazing, but do you realize what God is doing here then through all of this? In a culture that discounts the eyewitness testimony of women, God granted women exclusively the first experience of having seen the risen Savior. He gave it to them. God granted women the honor and the privilege of carrying the good news first that He is not here for he has risen. By the way, it's just another reason to believe that these accounts are true. If, if you were going to fabricate a story and write it in books like the Gospels to tell the world that Jesus had risen, you would not have chosen to give women the prominence in the narrative because they're not believed in that day. But God wanted these ladies as central to the story. You think God knew then What we understand now, Hmm. that women are more than capable of being first-hand witnesses to the greatest thing God ever did in this world. Is it possible that God is speaking to us across the ages where women are recognized as equally able to see, hear, grasp truth, and speak? If so, these old narratives speak very loudly to 21st century Americans. Because what we know to be true, God honored and recognized then. So listen, it's the apostles, it's Jesus' chosen men who missed out on these first experiences of seeing and embracing and worshiping the risen Christ. In fact, they are slow to believe. So Jesus was going to send them more messengers. And finally, when they are still uncertain, he's going to come to them himself before The planned meeting in Galilee, because it doesn't seem like that's going to happen unless he comes and gets their attention personally. So we'll talk about some of those appearances next time. I said at the beginning today that these ladies had a a very tear-filled Passover, uh, having seen the Lord bloodied, personally seen him after he'd been mercilessly flogged and beaten, watched him be crucified for six hours, and then watched a spear thrust up into his chest cavity. Those were their memories that that very day that they celebrated Passover. But after that day, every Passover from that early Sunday morning on would be a feast of joy for these daughters of Israel. The resurrected Jesus put all the horrors of the crucifixion and that horrible day in perspective because he is the Lamb of God. So every future Passover would be a perfect reminder that by his blood, not animal blood, that death will pass on, it will pass over us. Forgiveness has come, God's wrath is appeased, and God is reconciled to us through Christ. But do remember, without the resurrection, there would be no gospel, Without the resurrection, there would be no word. Without the resurrection, there would be no church, no dynamic impact for good on our harsh and brutal world. Jesus would have been a completely forgotten person. The world is way better because he came, and it's going to be better still when he comes again. In the meantime, what sort of people should you and I be who believe in his resurrection? Well, we too should rejoice in him we should worship at his feet like these women did maybe we should be eager to tell the good news to somebody else we should certainly be different from people that have no hope no such relationship with the risen lord we should be different people than they are you have every reason in christ to face your life with courage and joy he is not here for he is risen let's pray Our great God, we're so thankful for the accounts you've given us of this glorious and wonderful day. The proof, the very proof that what Jesus accomplished on the cross was accepted by you. That when he said it is finished, it was finished. Salvation is done. And that life follows death. We, when we're tied to him by faith, will experience that very life when we pass from this world And Father, we're so thankful for that. We give you glory and praise. We thank you for choosing these ladies to receive such a special gift and their stories being told forever. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, next week we'll be back and we'll continue on with the resurrection of Jesus.